home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey, how's it going? My name is Doug, and this is episode 37 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. And today I'm going to shift gears a bit by giving a rebuttal to a Mashable article that appeared last month and commenting on an answer from an Ace on the House podcast episode from February 1st. (laughs) Timely. Yep, I have my finger on the pulse. In all seriousness, though, my website and this podcast focus on home improvements. I often mention my future woodworking shop and my desire to make stuff, but I've also come to terms with the reality that my life as a woodworking hobbyist will likely not take off until after I retire, which, if all goes according to plan, will be within the next decade or so. And the reason for that is simply time and money. I don't have enough of either while holding down my full-time job and doing other stuff around the house. That's just the way things are right now. So, needless to say, when it comes to the so-called maker community at this time, I am on the outside looking in. But I still identify strongly with the community, and there are a number of makers that I follow on YouTube. But enough about me. I would like to begin with the Mashable article. Now, whatever you think of Mashable or BuzzFeed or any other clickbaity sites, they do sometimes produce some interesting content. And with a provocative title like 11 DIY videos that absolutely no one asked for. Well, I, uh, I took the bait. The article is a collection of curated videos. 11 of them, in fact, which is where the title comes from. With a very brief commentary about each one written by Charlotte Roos. Unfortunately, there is no way to comment directly on the article, so I'm using this podcast to add my two cents. The link to the article is in the show notes for this episode. Now, I'm not going to comment on all the videos. I just picked a handful that I thought were the most interesting. The first video is How to Make a Ring Out of Denim. Ms. Ruse writes, One of the biggest problems facing the world today is the utter lack of rings made out of jeans. Thanks to YouTuber Jedrick29T, that is no longer an issue. Unfortunately, unless you have an array of power tools, you're just out of luck. Even if you were dying for a ring made out of jeans, there must be an easier way to do it than this. There is so much wrong here. Where do I start? Clearly, she just doesn't get it. With all due respect. First of all, the ring in question is made from denim and epoxy and is shaped on a lathe. It is a ring-making video. It is not about the material as much as it is about the process. That said, let's dissect Ms. Ruse's comments. One of the biggest problems facing the world today is the utter lack of rings made out of jeans. Thanks to YouTuber Jedrick2019, this is no longer an issue. 
Wow. That just doesn't set the tone for the whole article. Making. Making is not necessarily about solving a problem. Forget about the genes for a second. It's not like there's a shortage of any kind of rings in the world. And jewelry is not going to solve any problems facing the world today, regardless of what it is made of. Making is about taking a material or materials and transforming them. Sometimes it's about utility, making a useful thing. But more often, it's about creativity. Even something as utilitarian as a table or bookshelf can be as unique or fancy as the maker wants it to be. Unfortunately, unless you have an array of power tools, you are just out of luck. Okay, yeah. I guess if you don't have a lathe, you're going to have a hard time making a ring, especially this ring. But what was Jedrick 2019's point with this video? Was he saying, hey, if you want to make this ring, you're going to need a lathe? Or was he saying, hey, if you have a lathe, you too can make this ring? Or maybe, just maybe he was saying, hey, I have a lathe. Watch me make this ring, and maybe you'll be inspired to make something yourself. Even if you were dying for a ring made out of jeans, there must be an easier way to do it than this. <laughs> Nobody is dying to make a ring out of jeans. Nobody is dying to make anything out of anything. But it's the second part of the statement that shows how Ms. Roos is out of touch with the maker community at large. Easier is not necessarily an end goal. Easier would be going to the store or going online and buying something that was made in a factory somewhere. Easier would be going to Ikea for that table or bookshelf. Easier is buying frozen lasagna instead of making it from scratch. Easier is using a calculator instead of using a scratch pad and your brain. Easier is using a point-and-shoot camera instead of a manual. Easier is reading cliff notes instead of the book. Easier does have its place, but it's not nearly as satisfying. Why settle for easier? So, what is the deal with this denim ring that nobody asks for? Well, I of the beholder. I have zero interest in jewelry. I don't even wear my wedding ring, especially when I go to a bar. But seriously, the finished product is really cool. It's cool. It's unique. And isn't that the point of this exercise in the first place? Next up. A concrete chair. Such a comfy material. Why, yes, it can be, but sorry for interrupting. The video is an IKEA hack. Using a plastic chair as a mold for concrete. Here's what Ms. Rue says about that. A trend that we've seen a lot of recently is concrete and cement DIY decor projects for household items. Concrete is not a fun medium to work with. It's a long, messy process, so we're not sure why every 
cutesy DIY channel on YouTube has hopped on board with this trend. Shoulder shrug. Let's break this down. Concrete and cement DIY decor projects for household items is a trend. Okay, can't argue with that, except cement is an ingredient in concrete, but that's beside the point. Why do you think that is? Could it be because an 80-pound bag of concrete mix is under $5? And all you have to do is add water? And you are only limited by the mold you use, in this case a children's chair that sells for under $20? So for an initial investment of $25 or $30, I don't remember how many bags he used, you can make a piece of durable outdoor furniture that's probably worth at least double that. And if you reuse the plastic chair for additional pieces, the unit cost is even less. So, cheap material, durable product. That explains the trend. Concrete is not a fun medium to work with. It's a long, messy process, so we're not sure why every cutesy DIY channel on YouTube has hopped on board with this trend. Last thing first. Cutesy? (laughs) Really? Could you be any more condescending? That aside, the reason why DIY channels on YouTube have hopped on board with this trend is because it is just that. It's a trend. As long as people are interested in watching those videos, content creators are going to create them. And then at some point, we'll move on to something else. It's no different than, say, river tables. Yes, these trends reach a saturation point, but until that happens, what is wrong with seeing different approaches by different people? As for how fun concrete is to work with, I will respect your opinion, but it's just that. Your opinion. The trend would have died long ago if people were not having fun with it. Is the process long and messy? Yeah, sure, it can be messy. But woodworking is messy. Sawdust gets everywhere. Painting? Also messy. Ceramics? Definitely messy. Gardening? Well, you know, you get topsoil in your cuticles, need I say more? Cooking and baking. Uh, Why would you want to get flour and sugar all over the place when you can go and buy a cake without making a mess? Most home improvements are horribly messy. Drywall, tile, painting. The point is that just about any creative endeavor is going to be messy. You know, there's a very talented maker from Portugal named Cristiana, and the name of her YouTube channel is Get Hands Dirty. And I'll just leave that there. So you can either sit back and do nothing and not create a mess. Or you can get creative. It's a choice. Oh, and that sarcasm about concrete being such a comfortable material? Smooth molded concrete could be every bit as comfortable or even more comfortable than seating made from wood or plastic. Now, there are other videos on the list that are a little more questionable, like making hot glue underwear for your smartphone or hot glue sandals. Yes, I said smartphone underwear. I don't get it, but then I didn't 
get the point of the macrame owls that my mother and my aunt made back in the 1970s, so I'll just shrug my shoulders and move on. But wait, hot glue sandals? They, they might not be terribly practical, but I imagine they would provide amazing traction. So, maybe in the hot sun they're not such a great idea, but around an indoor pool? They might work. Hmm. But, like I said, moving on. Next up is the chalk chain. Charlotte Roos describes it pretty well. And then there's this video about how to form a stick of chalk into a linked chain. Yes, you read that correctly. Although this process is certainly interesting to watch and absolutely demonstrates a great amount of skill, it still leaves you wondering who thought that anyone would ever need this in their lives. We're just happy they edited the chalk scraping sound out of this one. Yes, it is interesting to watch. Yes, it demonstrates a great amount of skill. Good, we're in agreement. But it did not leave me wondering who thought that anyone would ever need this in their lives. Again, with all due respect, Ms. Ruse is kind of missing the point. Does a thing have to be useful? Is the thing the goal? Or is it about finding, I don't know, the zen in the process? Whether you're whittling a stick on the front porch or turning a bowl or a denim ring on a lathe or carving a chain out of chalk, you are shutting off the noise of the world and focusing on that one thing. And that is something that we all need in our lives. I think we can all agree on that. Next up is the soda can grill. Literally, a grill made by cutting a soda can in half lengthwise and turning it into a mini charcoal grill. Ms. Roos elaborates. There have been countless times that we've wanted to cook just one sausage, but didn't want to fire up the whole grill. For those of you who enjoy sticking to the recommended serving size, there are many tutorials on how to make a grill out of a soda can. And we mean so many tutorials. I am deliberately not looking up any of those other tutorials because I have my own thoughts and I don't want anything else to influence them in terms of why I think you might want to make such an item. Again, Ms. Roos is taking things at face value and I think there's a much bigger picture here that she's ignoring. Nobody is going to carry around a mini pop can barbecue to cook their lunch. Although would make an interesting conversation piece. This is an exercise in engineering. Not that I know anything about engineering, but what we're looking at here is the ability to take a familiar object and use it in a new way. And it's also the ability to problem solve with materials on hand. So basically, what can I make out of this pop can or... How can I make a grill using this pop can? The bottom line is, whether it's practical or impractical, the soda can grill does work. 
finally, we have the Bleeding Hand Candle. What this is, is a wonderfully macabre wax candle in the shape of a hand with the wrist as the base and the palm and fingers facing upwards. Each finger has a wick, and as the wick burns, the wax melts so that the red wax that's inside trickles down like blood. And, as an added bonus, the melting wax reveals skeletal bones inside the hand. Well, apparently Ms. Roos is not impressed. If you know anyone who has this casually sitting around their home during any time that isn't Halloween, unfriend them immediately. They have disturbing taste in decor. Um, I will choose my own friends. Thank you very much. Now, if such an artistic piece appeals to you and you're willing to risk a potential unfriending, I have some good news. The candle in question is available on Etsy, and you can purchase it for $30. In fact, it is a best seller on Etsy. And when I was looking at it back on March 8th, 13 people had it in their carts right now. Plus, the shop has a solid five-star rating. And no, this is not a paid promotion, nor do I have any affiliation to the seller or to Etsy. But the point is, I guess there is a market for this, this disturbing decor item. And it isn't even Halloween. Again, Eye of the Beholder. I know people who would probably like to have this candle sitting around their home anytime year-round. But you know, this isn't even a DIY video, so I honestly don't know why it's on the list in the first place. I want to be perfectly clear here. I have nothing against Ms. Roos personally. What I take issue with is the level of sarcasm and, for the lack of a better word, ignorance. Even the URL contains the phrase, DIY hack fails. And in her own introduction, she says, we're talking about those videos where someone decides to DIY or hack something that nobody really wants or needs and ends up making the process 19 billion steps long. So what exactly is a DIY fail? This is me talking now. Isn't a fail when you set out to do something or make something and it doesn't work out as intended? By that definition, I don't think these are fails. Maybe questionable, but not fails. And I think I've already addressed the questionable part. Not all of these projects are hacks either. The ring is not a hack. The chair is. The chalk chain is not a hack. The soda can grill is. And the candle isn't even DIY. And frankly, none of the processes are 19 billion steps long. I think she may have exaggerated just a wee bit about that. You know, if you're the least bit familiar with the maker community, you probably know Jimmy DeResta. On his website, he's selling prints that he made on these antique presses that he restored. Every step of the process, from the restoration to the actual printing, is messy. It would have been cleaner and less messy and easier just to use an inkjet printer or take the digital file to a commercial printer. But cleaner and less messy would not be satisfying. The process 
is part of the story. You have to ask yourself in this case, what is the thing? The poster was not Duresta's end goal. He didn't say to himself one day, gee, I would like to go out and make a poster. How can I do that? Well, first, I have to restore an antique printing press. (laughs) No, that's not what happened. What happened was he found a printing press and he painstakingly restored it back to operating condition. And then he said, what can I do with this thing now that it works? And so you can now purchase a print from Jimmy DeResta that exists because of the long process of restoring the press, that exists because Jimmy DeResta did the manual labor to physically make the print the old-fashioned way. The story is in the process. And that, in a nutshell, is one of the pillars of the maker movement. It's not always about looking for the easiest way. It's about getting your hands dirty. It's about experimentation. It's about the transformation where you take something and make it something new or different. And thanks to YouTube, we are lucky enough to be able to follow the maker along that journey and maybe be inspired to make something ourselves. There is more that I could say about this, but I think I will just leave it here. Not every piece of content on the internet is intended for everybody. It's okay not to get something. But just because you don't get it doesn't necessarily make it a fail. Okay, now on to something else. In past episodes of this podcast, I've done a segment called If You Ask Me. These are questions that have been asked on other podcasts or broadcasts where I believe I could add some value to the answers. On the February 1st or 2nd episode of Ace on the House, featuring Adam Carolla and Eric Stromer, Joel, age 45, called from Illinois about a woodworking bench. Joel introduced himself as a semi-new homeowner who bought his house in October and was now at the point where he wanted to start building things for the house. And the first step of that was to build a proper woodworking bench. So he asked Corolla and Stromer for their advice. Adam had some general thoughts, a good set of casters for mobility, but he stressed that he doesn't like the overbuilt stuff, the 4x4 construction that makes it super heavy. He suggested a metal frame, even aluminum. Stromer suggested a workbench plant that he knew about that used a single sheet of plywood. The caller asked about using MDF for the top, and both Corolla and Stromer shot the idea down as too heavy. Then Stromer suggested a butcher block top, depending on budget. Although I think a butcher block would fall in the heavy category, wouldn't it? Finally, Stromer pointed out that for a couple hundred bucks, the caller could buy a pre-made bench. And then they went off on a tangent about Bob Vila. So the two takeaways... Make it mobile and don't overbuild. And Adam should know, he spent a decade working as a carpenter before he was in radio, so his opinions are based in reality. Unlike me, I keep talking about my future woodworking shop, but I can't speak from experience like Adam can. But that's not going to stop me. Because I've been planning my workshop for years now, I've done a lot of research. And I've seen 
I've seen the heavy, overbuilt benches of which Adam speaks. The problem with Adam's answer is that he doesn't have enough information. Question the first. How big is the workshop? Question number two. What tools are in the workshop or what tools are going to be in the workshop? Specifically, the table saw. Is it a heavy cabinet saw or is it a more portable contractor's saw? Does it have an outfeed table? And what kind of woodworking will the caller be doing? Here's why the size of the workshop is important. Larger shops have room for both a woodworking bench and an assembly table. In a smaller shop, the woodworking bench has to do double duty and could also possibly serve as the outfeed table for the table saw as well. The kind of woodworking will dictate the style of bench that will work best. Working with hand tools, hand cutting dovetails, doing a lot of work with chisels and hand planes, then you'll want the bench to be heavy and stable. You don't want the bench to move around under those kinds of forces. But I agree with Adam that you don't want a heavy bench in a small shop where you would have to move it around, whether it has casters or not. And a heavy carpenter's bench may be overkill if you're not doing the kind of woodworking that demands it. An assembly table needs to have a perfectly flat surface for when you're assembling furniture. The assembly table is also the surface that's going to take some abuse from finishes. And it can be lighter and more portable. And it can also be used as an outfeed. It's nice to have both if you have the room. But if you don't have a large workshop and based on what I've seen on YouTube, a two-car garage is considered a small workshop, then you will need to make a bench that is as versatile as possible. A hybrid, if you will. The design that accomplishes that the best, from what I've seen, is the Polk Bench. P-A-U-L-K. Designed by Ron Polk. And if you're not sure exactly what you're going to need, it will make a good starting point. Jay Bates makes a version that I will link to in the show notes. The top of the Polk Bench is a torsion box. Wikipedia definition coming up. A torsion box consists of two layers of material, skins, on either side of a lightweight core, usually a grid of beams. It is designed to resist torsion under an applied load. In other words, it stays flat and stable. The grid and the top and bottom layers are all made of plywood, in the case of the Polk bench, and large circular openings are cut into the grid, sort of like windows, if you can picture that. That reduces the weight, and it provides a means for temporary storage of tools so you don't have them laying around on the top surface of the table when you are working. Holes can be drilled in the top surface for bench dogs. Now, bench dogs are pegs that can be used to hold larger material in place when clamping, and you use those in conjunction with a vise, or it can help hold material when sanding or working with hand tools. They're very, they're a good thing to have. Ron Polk designed the top to be movable, removable, making the bench more portable to take it onto job sites, or you can do Jay Bates's version, which is more permanent. 
In either case, you can design the height of the bench to be slightly, just slightly less than your table saw, so it can also function as an outfeed table. So when you're cutting material, it's not going to drop on the floor. A version of the Polk bench is going to be one of my first pieces of shop furniture, and it's what I would recommend, if you ask me. And with that, this episode of the Thumb and Hammer podcast has come to an end. I would like to thank you very much for joining me. There are a lot of podcasts out there competing for your attention, so I appreciate you spending part of your day listening to mine. Please, if you have any feedback or suggestions, how to make this podcast better, or topics you'd like me to cover, please shoot me an email. You can do that through the website at thumbandhammer.com slash contact. Any home improvement questions are also welcome. You can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at thumbandhammer. Subscribe, rate, review, and all that stuff, and Help me out by telling a friend. Again, thank you. And I will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Cheers.